That song we just heard sung and some of us were able to participate in. Imagining God's expression of love toward us. Sometimes it's easier to experience that than at other times. Perhaps when things are good with your life and circumstances, you have that sense. But when things are not going so well, it's harder to have that sense. Well, picture the Apostle Paul. He's in his mid-60s at this point. Probably a little frail, a lot of wear and tear on his body. Winter's approaching. It's probably pretty cool at night. He's stripped down, basically naked. He's in a pit in the ground. Hardly any light. It's covered up. There's a little hole. He's not being fed very well. There's there's no facilities to use. And yet, there Paul sits singing. I can see the love in your eyes. And he knows that even in his imprisonment, in his own life, God is still raising the dead in him. And he's confident that even through his imprisonment, God is still using him to raise the dead in the world. What enables and empowers that kind of trust, that kind of hope. Well, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're finishing up the last letter that we have from the Apostle Paul. In this letter, he talks about running the race, finishing the course. We're actually going to read that passage this morning. And what keeps Paul going is this reverence over the majesty of God, over the, the wonder of God's Word, over the, 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 the largeness of the mission of God. And we're going to learn about that reverence this morning. We're talking about running the race with reverence. We sang that one song this morning, Arms Lifted High in Awe of you, God, and some of us were moved to raise our hands high. But we're not used to that kind of reverence in our day. It's hard to find evil examples of it. But I, I found an example this week that I want to show you. It's actually uh, one of my favorite actors of all time, Tom Hanks. In a movie that is really early on in his career, he's taken some grief for it. It's become sort of a, a cult hit among Tom Hanks fans. It's called Joe versus the Volcano. And uh, in this movie, uh, Tom Hanks plays Joe Banks. He's a hypochondriac. He always thinks there's something wrong with him. He always feels like he's getting something that is terminal. He hates his job. He gets all stressed out over everything. And he becomes disillusioned with his life. Despairing. And then he goes to the doctor again. Only this time he finds out he does have a terminal disease. 
and he has six months to live. He runs into this eccentric billionaire who wants to buy an island in the South Pacific because it has a certain mineral that is needed to make microconductors. The problem is the island people believe that their fire god doesn't want them to sell the island. And they tell this billionaire that if their fire god is appeased, then they'll give him the mineral rights. Well, the problem is to appease their fire guard, god, somebody has to be willing to jump into a volcano and sacrifice themselves. And none of the islanders are willing to do it. So this billionaire tells Tom Hanks' character, you can spend all the money you want in a certain period of time, but as your death day approaches, you need to travel to this island and throw yourself into the volcano. So Joe Banks, Tom Hanks' character, says, what? I'm going to die anyway. Why not? So he lives like a billionaire for a season, and he gets on this yacht and finally makes his way toward the island. Well, on the way toward the island, the yacht sinks, and Tom Hanks is left with four suitcases all wired together when something extraordinary happens that changes his life. Watch. Even Hollywood gets it. Even Hollywood knows intuitively that if your heart is filled with reverence, even your posture will reveal it. But not only will your posture reveal it, your whole life will. 
as Tom Hanks' character was struck by the majesty of God, he stands up and he raises his hands high. And then he kneels and says, Oh God, whose name I do not know. Thank you. If you're here this morning and you know Christ, you don't have to say, Oh God, whose name I do not know. Because you know him. And he knows you. But sometimes, like Tom Hanks, we forget how big. Did you find yourself thinking how big what? I forget how big what? How big the moon is? It maybe leads to wonder. Or how big my life is? Maybe that leads to gratitude, motivation. Or, as I think the clip is trying to show us, do we forget just how big God is in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of coronavirus, in the midst of Syria, in the midst of ridiculous politics? Do we forget just how big God is? And when we get a fresh glimpse of how big God is, it fills our lives with reverence. And whether we're in a pit facing death at any moment or whether things have never been better, we live a life by running the race with reverence. This passage tells us how. Let's all stand out of reverence for God. Don't I say that every week? Let's all stand out of reverence for God. Do we think about that, or is it just something we do automatically every week? May God truly grant us the reverence in our hearts that our posture is showing now. Hear the word of God. I charge you in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth, and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired 
infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's very word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he longs for us to run the race with reverence. Let's pray. You are the majestic God. You are the king, the eternal king. With you, nothing or no one can compare. And God, because of Jesus, those of us who know Jesus, we no longer need to say, oh God, whose name I do not know. We know you, and more importantly, we are known by you. So lead us, Holy Spirit, now in reverential awe. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So in Joe versus the volcano, the rising full moon led Joe to reverence and awe. And the rising of the truths in this passage lead us to fullness of reverence as well. Three things that I want us to glean from this text this morning. First of all, run reverently after the whole heart of God. Look at verse 1. I charge you. It's a very solemn word. I charge you. I adjure you. In the presence of God. You, you can just feel the sobriety in Paul's voice. I mean, if someone came up to you that, that you thought really had spiritual authority and said, I solemnly charge you in the presence of the living God. I don't know about you, but my knees would start shaking. See, we, we think about the presence of God as like high fives all around and hugs for everybody. But if you study Scripture and what it says happens to people when they're in the presence of God, you get a whole different picture. I mean, take the Apostle John, for instance. Okay, John had a great self-image, self-concept. John always referred to himself as the beloved disciple, or in other words, the disciple whom Jesus really loved. Pretty good self-concept, right? So if you think if anybody would be in the presence of Jesus after the resurrection, it would be John giving high fives and hugs, right? You go to Revelation 1, verse 17, and Jesus appears to John, and the text tells us, I fell at his feet like a dead man. No high fives. No hugs all around. You know, there's so much talk in our day about the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the patience of God, and it's all true. And that's why we talk about it here. But there's so much more to God than that. He's the holy God. He's the infinitely just God. He's the God who dwells in inapproachable light. He's the God by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. And though it sounds archaic to our culture's ears, he is indeed a God of wrath. 
Look at verse 1 again. Paul says, The presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. By the way, that's where we get our Apostles' Creed. He's coming to judge the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. Even Jesus, sometimes we minimize his heart. And we cut him down to our liking and our size. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Savior, the gracious God. Hallelujah! But in Revelation, in one of the great oxymorons of all time, it says, People on earth will cower before the wrath of the Lamb. When's the last time you've seen a lamb inflict wrath? Is there anything more gentle than a lamb? And yet, the one who came the first time as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world will return a second time and the wrath of the Lamb will be unleashed. Do you know this God? Do you think God just automatically pours out his love on you? Are you presuming upon his grace? Or do you recognize the whole heart of God that's filled with justice and righteousness and majesty? And the only way you can know this God whose name you do not know is through Jesus Christ, his finished work, living a life of obedience that you and I couldn't live, dying a substitutionary death, paying the penalty of the wrath of God. We see the whole heart of God at the cross. We see the whole heart of God in mercy and grace. But there's only mercy and grace in the context of justice and righteousness and wrath. And we see the wrath of God unloaded upon Jesus who didn't deserve it. May we be a people who worship the whole heart of God. Every single one of us worships a figment of our own imagination at some level. Every one of us. Because every single one of us has a view of God that doesn't line up exactly with the Bible's view of God. And discipleship or Christian living is recognizing where our view of God is out of a line with the Bible's view of God and our view of God becomes the Bible's view of God. The Bible's view of God becomes our view of God. And guess what? It'll never happen until the day we die. We're never going to actually worship the true God of the universe as he truly is until we get to the New Jerusalem. So my question is, where is your view of God outside the lines? Are you a person who has a tendency to think of God as mercy and grace and patience and kindness and goodness? Okay, that's all true. But do you also see God and worship God and revere God 
according to his righteousness and justice, and yes, even wrath. If you were to go to New York City, especially uh, in the, the borough of Brooklyn, there's a museum in Brooklyn that is uh, one, of the, one of the greatest uh, undertakers of um, Egyptian art in the world. You'll, you'll find Egyptian statues, Egyptian uh, sculptures. And if you're very observant, you'll end up noticing what most people do notice. And they, it's the number one question asked of the curator of this museum in Brooklyn. And that is, why do so many sculptures and statues have their noses missing? And you might think, well, it's protruding. It's the easiest thing to you know, be knocked off over the years? And he would say, no, absolutely not. It's actually from vandalism. They were purposely knocked off or smashed in. And you think, well, why is that? Well, the ancients believed, and oh, by the way, even our Bible teaches this. Think about yourself as an image bearer of God, made in the image of God. The ancients believed that an image, whether it be us as humans or in this case, statues and sculptures, that an image actually bore the essence of the God which was represented. And if you did something to the image, that affected the God itself. So if you lopped off an ear of a statue or a sculpture, you were preventing your enemies, and from if you took the ear off of one of their gods, you were preventing them from ever being heard by their God. You'd take off the God's ear. If, if you were to take off a, a God's nose, a statue or sculpture's nose, it couldn't breathe. You'll notice that the gods don't often have mouths. So if you take off the nose, it can't breathe, so you're effectively killing the God. So here's my question. How are you vandalizing God's heart this morning? What elements of the nature of God have you just lopped off? None of us worships the whole heart of God. We all have bents. We all have biases. We need to engage in worship and hear the scriptures taught so that we understand the whole heart of God. Jason, every week, I, I, I know he agonizes over what songs we should sing. Why? Because if he's not careful, if he doesn't choose the right songs, no pressure, Jason, if, if he doesn't choose the right songs, the, the view of this whole congregation is skewed. If all he ever chooses are songs about mercy and grace and love and kindness, then we're not going to have a whole lot of awe when it comes to the majesty and righteousness and justice of God. On the other hand, if he only choose, chose songs about righteousness and justice and wrath, we'd probably turn into a pretty fearful and actually pretty cold and harsh congregation. Why do I preach the way I do? If you've been coming for a while, you know that I preach verse by verse by verse by verse. 
And I even, if you're paying attention, I preach Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. Why do I do that? Because you're going to have a skewed view of God if I don't do that. I need to expose you to what our second point is, and that is the whole counsel of God. Run reverently after the whole heart of God. Secondly, run reverently after the whole counsel of God. Look at verse 2. Preach the word. In, in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul says to the elders at Ephesus, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. We are to know this whole book. I'm shocked by how many people have reduced the Bible by 66% by just reading their New Testaments. The New Testament is one-third of the Bible. And yet so many people, all they think is important is the New Testament. That's why I go New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, and verse by verse. There are things that you cannot know about God and about life apart from the Old Testament. The New Testament is simply the Old Testament revealed. And the Old Testament is simply the New Testament concealed. Now, there are three uses of Scripture in this passage that lead us to reverence. Look at verse 2. To reprove, to rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. To reprove means to redirect somebody. So they're, they're just starting to sort of, you know, you have those cars uh, uh, that, that nowadays, if somehow it, it looks at the center line or the end line, and if you get close to getting out of the lane, it starts beeping at you. Beep, 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 beep. That's, that's what reproof means. The scripture is there to go beep, 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 beep when you're starting to get out of your lane, okay? It, it's not really that you're, you're sinning yet, but you're, you're starting to get, right to the edge of the lane, and the Scripture's there to reprove us and correct us. Then the next word, rebuke, that's more serious. That's when you be actually warn somebody because they're off the rails. They're, they're actually living in sin, and they need to be rebuked. Or they're unrepentant, and they really need to be warned about the consequences of the direction they're going. And then there's exhort. That means to come along somebody who may be um, just as feeling vulnerable and they're therefore exposed to temptation. You put your arm around them and said, hey, this is still the right way to go. And I'll help you. Let's go there together. Okay, that's, that's to exhort. So the whole counsel of God is necessary. One of my favorite verses with respect to discipleship and mentoring is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Listen to this. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. You don't admonish the faint-hearted, and you don't admonish the weak. You help the weak, encourage the faint-hearted, and admonish the idle. You don't encourage the idle, and you don't help the idle. The Word of God has to be applied to each person where they are. If you try to admonish the weak, what happens? They lose heart. They despair. They give up. If you encourage the idle, what happens? That's I-D-L-E, right? The lazy. If you encourage them, 
they just blow you off. It's like, well, yeah, I'm going to do what I want to do. We need the Word of God to do its full work in our lives. How do you have reverence for the whole Word of God in, a, in an Apple Music or a Pandora world? Have you ever thought about that? All of us, well, many of us, I'm sure, have used Pandora to listen to music. For those of you who don't know, it's an app. And you can pick the genre of music you want to listen to. I like 70s rock or southern rock, right? And, uh, and I put that in and it starts playing music. So let's say uh, Charlie Daniels Band comes on. I push like. Almond Brothers, I push like. Leonard Skinner, I push like. Marshall Tucker, I, pu I push. But then there's a song that comes on I don't like. And I push dislike. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Now, somebody has created an algorithm. I don't understand this stuff. It's way beyond my pay grade. But somebody has created an algorithm that every time you do thumbs up to a song, that algorithm begins to actually fashion a playlist more according to your liking. And if a song comes on you don't like and you hit thumbs down, it immediately stops playing that song the algorithm factors in that you don't like that song and thinks about all the other songs like that that you may not like and doesn't play them. So it begins refining your music playlist tastes. And then every time you hear a song, you hit thumbs up or thumbs down, and that algorithm is constantly working until finally, theoretically, in the end, you'll only ever hear songs you love. Folks, if that's how you're reading Scripture... You're headed for a train wreck. You, you can't just find those portions of Scripture that you like, that make you feel good. Well, ultimately, actually, God wants to change our hearts so that we would, in fact, feel good, even when we don't feel good, if you know what I mean. God wants to work on our hearts so that we would love and embrace all of his word, the whole counsel of God, even those that may sting a bit. So when it comes to the whole counsel of God, where are you? How can you tell? What's a barometer? Well, first of all, are you reading God's word? You don't have a lot of reverence for God's word if you're not reading it, no matter what you say. Please hear me. I'm not being critical. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just simply stating when Tom Hanks experienced reverence, his hands went up. I'm not saying you need to raise your hands in worship, although I do think you need to consider that the Psalms talks about it all the time. But when it comes to the Word of God, you, you can't say you hold the Word of God in reverence when in fact you're not reading God's Word. And how many times have I said this over the past year? Mark my words. This is going to be the battle the church faces over the next decade. And that is, what is our church's view? Not Oak Mountains, although that is relevant. What is the American church's view of the Word of God? It's, it's already happening. Many in the younger generation, they're, they're already imbibing the doctrine of the culture that it is archaic to think that the Bible 
is actually the word of God. And certainly where it speaks of sexuality and other kinds of sin, it is not really to be taken as God's word because it's A, got errors, and and B, it was just cultural at the time. And some of you secretly are even saying, yeah, Bob, that is my view. And you need to know that if that's your view, you are on a slippery slope for which there is no stoppage. If any part of this book is not true, then we cannot trust any of it. But we can also live as practical atheists or pragmatic agnostics by saying we believe this is God's word and not reading it. We're not reading the whole thing. Not getting involved in Bible studies, discipleship, adult discipleship classes, enough of that. Run reverently after the whole heart of God, run reverently after the whole counsel of God, and then thirdly, run reverently after the whole mission of God. If we worship God's whole heart in reverence, and if we read his whole counsel in reverence, it will lead to a heart that embraces the whole mission of God with reverence. Look at verse 2, preach the word. Look at verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. Look at verse 5, the second part, fulfill your ministry. Now listen, this is written specifically to Timothy, I get that. But in 2 Timothy 1 verse 1, he starts the letter to Timothy by Paul, an apostle, sent by Jesus Christ. Well, Timothy knows who Paul is. Why would Paul need to do that? Because the letter is being read to all of God's people, the entire church at Ephesus. And so this may apply particularly to Timothy. It applies ultimately to all of us. After all, Jesus gave the great commission to all of us. That's why our mission at Oak Mountain is to engage every neighbor with the surprising power of grace. The neighbor over the fence of your backyard, over the mountain into the city of Birmingham, overseas to the nations, and even over the pew with each other. Fulfill your ministry. What is your ministry? Well, your vocation is your ministry. Butcher, baker, candlestick maker, homemaker. Whatever it is you spend the bulk of your time doing, that is a ministry. And connect it to the mission of God. The mission of God is not just saving souls. The mission of God is not just preaching the word. The mission of God is also living out the word. What, I mean, what's happening with the coronavirus? Are Christians going to join the non-Christian world and just wring our hands and be afraid? And stop going to church and watching online, as some of you may be this morning, because you're afraid to be here. Okay, if, if we react like the world does, then the world's saying, you Christians are a bunch of lying hypocrites. You don't believe in a God who's in power any more than we do. That's what we're saying. Now, I'm not saying we should be foolish. You'll find all kinds of little pumps around the thing, and I use them, Okay. But if we cower in fear at the threat of some of these things, rather than engaging in mission, we're really not living in reverence. 
What happened in Nashville, the tornadoes, that gives us an opportunity to engage people in deed of mercy. And there's, there's plenty of opportunity to engage with deeds of justice. When we think of protecting the lives of the unborn as well as protecting the lives of the born. What's your view of immigration? And how does it affect, how does your Christian worldview affect that? All of these things are related to the mission of God. What's your ministry? You have one. Paul talks about the gifts given to the church. We all have gifts. It may be teaching. It might be administrating. It might be leadership. It might be mercy. But are you using your gifts to minister in the local congregation? Paul says, I'm already being poured as a drink offering. In other words, Paul's departure means it's time to pass the baton. Are we ready to pass the baton to the next generation? Paul says in verse 7, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Will we be able to say that at the end of our lives? Only if we run the race with reverence. Reverence for God's whole heart. Reverence for the whole counsel of God. Reverence for the whole mission of God. At Oak Mountain, we talk about mission in terms of an aircraft carrier, right? An aircraft carrier, it's a warship. It's a battleship. And people will say, oh, Bob, that's so archaic to use that kind of vessel. Really? The scriptures talk about warfare all the time. We're in warfare against evil for the sake of this world. We're for this world. We're fighting against evil. We're not fighting against we're not in a culture war. We're fighting for culture. And we fly in all beat up and bloodied and bruised and we catch that catapult and it slows us down. And then we get out of our planes after flying those missions of love and renewal and restoration. And then all of us fulfill our ministry on the aircraft carrier. And we begin to minister to each other so that we're all built up and encouraged. And then we get back into those planes and we're catapulted off to do what? To fly those missions of love, renewal, and restoration. But to do that, to do that effectively requires that we become people who run the race with reverence. Jesus is the one who came and flew the ultimate mission of love and renewal and restoration. Jesus is the one who reveals the whole heart of God, grace and truth. Jesus is the one who reveals the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. It all points to Christ. And Jesus is the one who gives us the mission of God. Go into all the world, including your backyard, and make disciples of all nations. And the only way we keep flying those missions is as we continue to gaze upon the bigness of Jesus. 